Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response by Francis A. Sullivan, S.J. Chapter 1. Extra Ecclesiam Nulla Salus. When we Jesuits of the New England province die, we are buried in a cemetery in the town of Weston, Massachusetts, on the grounds of what was the seminary where most of us studied for the priesthood. However, one of the best known Jesuits our province has ever had, and one of the most gifted, does not lie with his confreres at Weston. Instead, Father Leonard Feeney's grave can be found in the place where he spent the last years of his life, in the rural village of Still River, Massachusetts. The inscription on the gravestone describes him not as a Jesuit, for he was no longer one when he died, but as the founder of the Slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Father Feeney did not leave the Jesuits in order to found a new community, as some founders of religious orders have done. In fact, he did not leave voluntarily, but was dismissed by our Father General for what was judged to be a grave offense against his vow of obedience. How this came about is suggested by the inscription in large block letters at the bottom of his gravestone. It reads, Extra Ecclesium Nulla Salus. The command which Father Feeney felt he could not in conscience obey required him to leave the Archdiocese of Boston. The reason behind this order was the fact that Feeney had publicly accused the Archbishop, Richard J. Cushing, of being a heretic for allowing that there was salvation outside the Catholic Church. Feeney refused to leave St. Benedict Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he was the leader and teacher of a group of zealous young Catholics, because he felt that his leaving would be seen as a tacit admission that what the Archbishop and the Jesuits at Boston College were teaching about salvation for non-Catholics was genuine Catholic doctrine and not the heresy that Feeney was convinced it was. This, of course, is the meaning of the Latin inscription on his gravestone, no salvation outside the church. For Feeney, the church could mean none other than the Roman Catholic Church, and no salvation outside it meant simply and literally that no one but a Roman Catholic could be saved. Of course, he did not for a moment think that all Roman Catholics were going to be saved. In fact, he was sure that a great many of them were heretics for allowing that non-Catholics could be saved, and needless to say, there was no salvation for heretics, even if they were Jesuits or archbishops. Four years after being dismissed from the Society of Jesus, Father Leonard Feeney was excommunicated by an order of the Holy See, approved by Pope Pius XII. Nineteen years later, when he was 75 years of age, he was reconciled to the Catholic Church by Bishop Bernard Flanagan, the Bishop of the Worcester Diocese, in which Still River is located. Father Richard J. Schmaruk, the priest who acted as Bishop Flanagan's agent in the matter, was quoted in the press account of the reconciliation as having said that Father Feeney was not required to retract his literal interpretation of the doctrine, no salvation outside the church. In any case, this is what his more intransigent followers chose for his epitaph. Frank Sheed has written something that perhaps many others have thought about this strange case. In the handling of Father Feeney, we hear a troubling echo of the handling of the modernists at the turn of the century. Like them, he was condemned, 
but not answered. When Pope Boniface VIII said in the bull Unum Sanctum that it was altogether necessary for salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, he seemed to be saying not only what Father Feeney was condemned for saying, but what a vast number of yesterday's Catholics had grown up believing. Everybody would have been helped by a full-length discussion. My agreement with the opinion expressed by Father Sheed about the need for a full-length discussion of the issues raised by Father Feeney is one of my reasons for undertaking the writing of this book. However, I have no intention of going into the judicial aspects of the case. For instance, to try to determine whether he was justly treated and being dismissed from the Jesuit order and excommunicated by the Holy See. What I do intend is to follow and try to understand the evolution through which Christian thinking about the salvation of people outside the church has gone from the earliest centuries of the Christian era to our own. This will require, to begin with, a full-length discussion of the teaching of the church fathers, popes, and councils, on which Leonard Feeney based his conviction that it was heresy to hold that non-Catholics could be saved. Frank Sheed mentioned the bull unum sanctum of Pope Boniface VIII. This 14th century pope was but one of the many popes and councils which had solemnly declared that there was no salvation outside the Catholic Church. In the course of this book, it is my intention to examine their statements in detail. However, it seems worthwhile at the outset just to quote some of the most significant ones to give the reader an idea of how strong a case Father Feeney could make for his position. Pope Innocent III, in the year 1208, prescribed a profession of faith to be made by Waldensians who wished to be reconciled with the Catholic Church. This profession of faith included the following statement, We believe in our hearts and confess with our lips that there is one church, not that of the heretics, but the holy Roman Catholic and apostolic church, outside of which we believe that no one is saved. The Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, under the same Pope Innocent III, issued a definition of Catholic faith against the Albigensian heretics, which included the statement, There is one universal church of the faithful, outside of which no one at all is saved. Pope Boniface VIII, in his bull Unum Sanctum, 1302, declared, We are obliged by our faith to believe and to hold that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Indeed, we firmly believe and sincerely confess this, and that outside of this church there is neither salvation nor the remission of sins. Moreover, we declare, state, and define that for every human creature, it is a matter of strict necessity for salvation to be subject to the Roman pontiff. The Council of Florence, 1442, in its decree for Jacobites, profession of faith for the reconciliation of various groups of monophysites, declared, The Holy Roman Church firmly believes, professes, and teaches that none of those who exist outside of the Catholic Church, neither pagans, nor Jews, nor heretics, nor schismatics, can become sharers of eternal life. Rather, they will go into the eternal fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, unless, before the end of their lives, 
they are joined to that same church. No one, even if he shed his blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he remain in the bosom and unity of the Catholic Church. Pope Pius IV, in his bull Inignoctum Nobis, also known as the Profession of Faith of the Council of Trent, 1564, required Catholics to profess and hold this true Catholic faith, outside of which no one can be saved. Pope Pius IX, in his Allocution Singulari Quodem, 1854, declared, Certainly we must hold it as of faith that no one can be saved outside of the apostolic Roman Church, that this is the only ark of salvation, that anyone who does not enter this will perish in the flood. The same Pope in his encyclical Quanto Confichamor Morore, 1863, declared, It is a well-known Catholic dogma that no one can be saved outside the Catholic Church. After reading through this formidable series of papal and conciliar statements, all affirming the necessity of being in the Catholic Church and professing the Catholic faith for salvation, the reader may well be inclined to agree that Leonard Feeney was right after all in claiming that this was a dogma of Catholic faith, and that anyone who taught that non-Catholics could be saved must be a heretic. One can only imagine with what astonishment Feeney and his followers and perhaps many other Catholics as well, must have read the following statements that were approved by Pope Paul VI and the assembled body of Catholic bishops at the Second Vatican Council. First, referring to Christians who are not members of the Roman Catholic Church, the Council declared, They lovingly believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ, Son of God and Savior. They are consecrated by baptism, through which they are united with Christ. They also recognize and receive other sacraments within their own churches or ecclesial communities. Many of them rejoice in the Episcopate, celebrate the Holy Eucharist, and cultivate devotion toward the Virgin Mother of God. They also share with us in prayer and other spiritual benefits. Likewise, we can say that in some real way they are joined with us in the Holy Spirit, for to them also he gives his gifts and graces and is thereby operative among them with his sanctifying power. The brethren divided from us also carry out many of the sacred actions of the Christian religion, undoubtedly in ways that vary according to the condition of each church or community. These actions can truly engender a life of grace and can be rightly described as capable of providing access to the community of salvation. It follows that these separated churches and communities though we believe they suffer from defects already mentioned, have by no means been deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation. For the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation, which derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. Then, with regard to those people, two-thirds of the world's population, who do not share Christian faith and baptism, the Council had the following to say. Those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. In the first place, there is the people to whom the covenants and the promises were given, and from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. On account of their fathers, 
This people remains most dear to God, for God does not repent of the gifts he makes, nor of the calls he issues. But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place among these, there are the Moslems, who, professing to hold the faith of Abraham, along with us adore the one and merciful God, who, on the last day, will judge mankind. Nor is God himself far distant from those who, in shadows and images, seek the unknown God, for it is he who gives to all men life and breath and every other gift, and who, as Savior, wills that all men be saved. Those also can attain to everlasting salvation, who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God, and, moved by grace, strive by their deeds to do his will, as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the help necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God, but who strive to live a good life thanks to his grace. Whatever goodness or truth is found among them is looked upon by the church as a preparation for the gospel. She regards such qualities as given by him who enlightens all men so that they may finally have life. Pressing upon the Christian, to be sure, are the need and the duty to battle against evil through manifold tribulations and even to suffer death. But linked with the Paschal mystery and patterned on the dying Christ, he will hasten forward to resurrection and the strength which comes from hope. All this holds true not only for Christians, but for all men of goodwill in whose hearts grace works in an unseen way. For since Christ died for all men, and since the ultimate vocation of man is one and divine, we ought to believe that the Holy Spirit, in a manner known only to God, offers to every man the possibility of being associated with this paschal mystery. Reflecting on the two series of documents that we have cited, the reader has every right to ask, how can the Catholic Church claim to be consistent with its own traditions when, having taught for so many centuries that there was no salvation outside itself, now, in its latest council, it has spoken so optimistically about the possibility of salvation not only for other Christians, but for Jews, Muslims, people of other religions, and people with no religion at all. On the one hand, the attitude toward the salvation of non-Catholics expressed in the earlier documents can only be described as negative and pessimistic. On the other hand, Karl Rahner has described optimism concerning salvation as one of the most noteworthy results of the Second Vatican Council. In his opinion, these assertions of optimism concerning salvation marked a far more decisive phase in the development of the Church's conscious awareness of her faith than, for instance, the doctrine of collegiality in the Church, the relationship between Scripture and tradition, the acceptance of the new exegesis, etc. I would call attention to two points in what I have quoted from Rahner. The first is his assertion regarding the optimism which characterizes the doctrine of Vatican II about the possibility of salvation for people who do not belong to the Catholic Church. This is surely evident to any impartial reader of the Council documents. 
The second point is his description of this as a development of the church's conscious awareness of her faith. This, it seems to me, raises a question that needs to be examined further. The question is whether this radical change from pessimism to optimism, this about-face from the position of no salvation outside the Catholic Church, to the recognition by Vatican II of the universal possibility of salvation, can really be seen as a genuine development of the Church's understanding of her faith. In other words, can this be justified as a legitimate development of doctrine? That there is such a thing as a development of doctrine which the Catholic Church recognizes as legitimate is beyond question. However, in some of its official documents, it has described such development in terms that make it questionable whether one can apply this notion to the radical change with which we are dealing here. For instance, the First Vatican Council declared, The meaning which our Holy Mother Church has once declared sacred dogmas to have must always be retained, and there must never be a deviation from that meaning on the specious ground and title of a more profound understanding. Therefore, let there be growth and abundant progress in understanding, knowledge, and wisdom in each and all, in individuals and in the whole church, at all times and in the progress of ages, but only within the proper limits, that is, within the same dogma, the same meaning, the same judgment. Likewise, Pope Pius X prescribed an oath against modernism in which Catholics were required to declare, I totally reject the heretical notion of the development of dogmas, by which dogmas would change from one meaning to another, different from the meaning by which the Church previously attached to them. The question then can be put this way. Despite the obvious difference between the language used by the medieval popes and councils on the question of salvation for those outside the Church, and the language used by Vatican II, is there any consistent meaning which would justify recognizing this as a genuine development of doctrine? In his opening address to the assembled bishops at Vatican II, Pope John XXIII called their attention to the very important distinction to be made between the faith itself and the way it is expressed when he said, The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another. So the question we are asking is whether, on the matter of salvation for those outside the church, there is a substance of the faith here that can be said to have undergone development, rather than to have suffered radical change. In the Declaration Mysterium Ecclesiae of 1973, the Roman Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has further elucidated the distinction between the substance of the faith and its historical expression. For the first time, an official document of the Holy See has explicitly recognized the fact that the Church's expression of its faith will necessarily be conditioned by a number of historical factors. This is so important for our subject that it seems worthwhile to quote it at length here. Difficulties in the transmission of divine revelation by the Church arise also from the historical condition that affects the expression of revelation. With regard to this historical condition, it must first be observed that the meaning of the pronouncements of faith depends partly upon the expressive power 
of the language used at a certain point in time and in particular circumstances. Moreover, it sometimes happens that some dogmatic truth is first expressed incompletely, but not falsely, and at a later date, when considered in a broader context of faith or human knowledge, it receives a fuller and more perfect expression. In addition, when the church makes new pronouncements and intends to confirm or clarify what is, in some way, contained in sacred scripture or in previous expressions of tradition, but at the same time it usually has the intention of solving certain questions or removing certain errors. All these things have to be taken into account in order that these pronouncements may be properly interpreted. Finally, even though the truths which the church intends to teach through its dogmatic formulas are distinct from the changeable conceptions of a given epoch and can be expressed without them, nevertheless, it can sometimes happen that these truths may be enunciated by the sacred magisterium in terms that bear traces of such conceptions. In addition, it has sometimes happened that certain formulas in the habitual usage of the church have given way to new expressions which, proposed and approved by the sacred magisterium, presented more clearly or more completely the same meaning. In this declaration of the Roman congregation, I would particularly note the following points. First, it recognizes the fact that a dogmatic truth that had previously been expressed in a less perfect way can when subsequently considered in a broader context of faith or human knowledge, receive a more perfect expression. Now it seems obvious that the subsequent more perfect expression is going to reflect a better understanding of the truth, and it is noteworthy that the church's better understanding of its faith can also be gained through a broader context of human knowledge. In the course of this study, we shall see, for instance, how a growth in human knowledge of such sciences as geography, anthropology, and psychology has contributed to a better understanding of the necessity of belonging to the church for salvation. Second, we are told that the expression of dogmatic truth at a given epoch may reflect conceptions and the mentality proper to that period of history. Thus, if we are going to understand what the medieval popes and councils meant when they denied salvation to those outside the church, we have to try to penetrate their mentality, to grasp their unspoken assumptions, the things which they took for granted, which influenced their way of understanding and thus of expressing their faith. To give one concrete example, we have seen that the Council of Florence in 1442 declared it to be a matter of Catholic faith that all pagans, Jews, heretics, and schismatics would certainly go to hell if they died outside the Catholic Church. But we have every reason to assume that the fathers of the Council of Florence also believe that God is just and that he does not condemn innocent people to the torments of hell. This unspoken element of their faith must certainly be taken into account if we are going to understand how they could have believed that God was going to condemn all those people to hell for being outside the Catholic Church. The conclusion is inescapable that they must have judged them all guilty in the sight of God and deserving of the punishment awaiting them. 
How they could have judged them all guilty is a matter we shall have to investigate. For the moment, it is enough to have noted that we cannot understand what the bishops at Florence said about the fate of those outside the church without asking how they could reconcile this with their much more fundamental belief in the goodness and justice of God. What I intend to do in this book, then, is to seek an understanding of what Christians have believed and taught about the salvation of those outside the church, with a view to determining, if possible, whether there is, after all, a substance of the faith here that underlies the very different ways in which it has been expressed. To anticipate the conclusion to which my study has led me, I will say that it is my conviction that there is such a substance of the faith, namely, the belief that God has assigned to the church a necessary role in the accomplishment of his plan for the salvation of humanity. In the varying conditions in which the church has lived out its history, this belief in its necessity for salvation has led Christians to express their faith in different ways, depending to a great extent on the judgment which Christians were conditioned to make about people who did not share their faith. If I am not mistaken, what has really changed in the course of time is not so much what Christians have believed about the necessity of being in the church for salvation as the judgment which they have made about those who were outside. So we are going to try to understand not only what they said, but what they thought, and why they thought that way, about the possibility of salvation for people who were outside the church. At this point, a word is in order about the method we intend to follow in this book. We are going to treat our subject in chronological order, beginning with the earliest fathers of the church and finishing with the post-Vatican II state of the question. But that does not mean that we are going to try to present the views of every father and every theologian who has had anything to say on our question. Our treatment is necessarily going to be selective, but our purpose is to select the writings of those who we believe have made a significant contribution to the development of Christian thinking about the salvation of those outside the church. To the extent that it is practical, given the limitations of a book like this, we intend to let those whom we have selected speak for themselves by quoting the most salient passages of their writings. But of course, we shall also provide what would seem to be indispensable background information to put their writings in context. And we shall offer such comments as seem helpful for the interpretation of what we are quoting. We shall begin by seeing what the early church fathers thought about the chances of salvation for Jews and Gentiles during the centuries before the coming of Christ.